Uh, it's an honor to open God's Word with you today. Um, Pastor Eric is out this week. He and his uh, family are enjoying some vacation in Arizona. He sent a text yesterday. He's praying for us, praying that God does his work through his word this morning. Looking forward to being back with us next Sunday. So before I dive into the sermon here, before we open God's word, let's just bow again and ask God uh, to bless this time together. Father, we're so thankful for the truths of what we've already shared, what we've already read and listened to and sung and prayed together. Uh, we thank you for who you are, uh, our rock, our refuge in the midst of all of the storms of life. Father, I pray that you would do your work now. I need your help to be a faithful and clear ambassador for you, speaking your word, uh, delivering it to the congregation. And every single person needs your help here to hear, to have ears to hear uh, and to obey. And so will you come? Uh, will your spirit come with great power uh, and work in each of our hearts today? All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite Christian songwriters is a guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman. Can I get a woohoo from anybody over 40 in the audience? All right, there we go. That's right. All right, Stephen Curtis Chapman, for over 25 years, his songs have been a blessing and an inspiration to me and to my family. The songs are fun, they're great to listen to with the windows rolled down, and they're deeply rooted in the overflow of his walk with God and in the truths of Scripture. What a blessing. He's been around for a long time. His music has won many, many awards, and he's probably released, I don't know, 20-plus albums or so. But on May 21st, 2008, he and his family experienced a really, really significant tragedy. Their five-year-old daughter ran into the path of an SUV that their older brother was driving, and she was killed from her injuries. As you can imagine how devastating that would be on multiple, multiple levels. And his, he and his family walked through an extended period of trial, of deep anguish and suffering. And it's from that experience that he released an album that's very different, very different, very unique than a lot of his other albums. It was an album that was designed to reflect the, the questions in his heart, the anguish in his soul that came from this tragic event. And at the same time, though, while it was an honest and raw expression of that anguish, it was also an expression of his faith in God and his fight to cling to faith and to cling to hope in the midst of unspeakable sorrow. One of the songs that he uh, wrote on that album is called You Are Faithful. The song starts out like this. I am broken, I am bleeding, I'm scared, and I'm confused. But you are faithful. God, you are faithful. And later on the song, later on in the song, he says, I've dropped anchor in your promises, and I'm holding on because you're faithful. God, you are faithful. I will proclaim it to the world I'll declare it to my heart. I'm going to sing it when the sun is shining, and I'm going to scream it in the dark. That album has ministered to a lot of people in some very unique ways, right? All of us face trial. All of us face fear and anguish and uncertainty. And it leads to the question, how do we rightly respond in the midst of those really dark 
in tragic situations. Beauty Will Rise is the name of that album, and it's a song full of, an album full of lament-type songs. Well, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is one of the, the first track in the lament album in the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms in the Bible, and about 60 of them are laments. There's difficult circumstances, and how do we rightly respond in the midst of our trials and suffering? It's important that we know and we understand because they provide profound instruction for us today. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 3. And if you have the Bibles that are provided, it's on page 449. Psalm 3. We're going to read it together. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. We're going to consider three main points from Psalm 3. The first is the context of lament. We're going to look what's going on in David's life. What's going on in this psalm that prompted him to write Psalm 3? And then we're going to go back to the top, and we're going to take another look at Psalm 3. We're going to look at the content of lament. So this morning, you get like two sermons in one, right? I mean, it's like a good double feature, a double header, right? One ticket gets you in, entry into both. M my note said uh, pause for the applause. I, 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 did, was there a disconnect somewhere there? Two sermons in one, same price? Anyway. All right. So then the third thing we're going to consider is the certainty in lament. As we think about the trials, the suffering, the, the really difficult things that we encounter in life. We want to talk about, end our sermon today with two very specific things that we can anchor our soul and be absolutely certain of in the midst of the darkest trial. All right, so let's start with the context of lament. The context of lament. What's going on in Psalm 3? And we're given a really, really significant and important clue from the very heading of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So the broader context for this is the book of 2 Samuel. And we're going to start a few chapters before this actual incident. But 2 Samuel chapter 5, King David was anointed, or David was anointed as king over united Israel. Right? It's wonderful. It's happy. It's a fulfillment of the promise of God. That's King David. Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and makes an incredible promise, an incredible series of promises to him and to his extended family, essentially to say, your family is going to have an everlasting kingdom. In 
2 Samuel chapter 8, David and his armies are conquering nations and taking names. They're just wiping out nation after nation in response to what God has called them to do. And in chapter 10, he whoops a few more armies. The land has peace and rest for a time. And David and his family live happily ever after. Disney makes a few sequels, milks the poor families of Israel with all sorts of movie tickets, action figures, plush toys. It was awesome. Except that it wasn't, right? If, if the story ended at 2 Samuel 10, wow, right? That's the happily ever after story. 2 Samuel 11, David makes some astonishingly sinful choices. It, it's incredible how far and how rapidly he fell. Instead of going out with his army to war, he stays home. Then he commits adultery. And then he compounds his sin by murdering his lover's husband. And then his family descends into dramatic and disturbing dysfunction. At least in some measure because of his role as an absentee father. And so on the heels of all of that, we come to 2 Samuel 15 and the context of Psalm 3. And in 2 Samuel 15... His son Absalom says, I'm going to be king. I want to depose of my father. And I want to be the king. So you don't have to turn there. But in 2 Samuel 15, 13 and 14, a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And in verse 23, all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And then down in verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping, as they went. This is the context of Psalm 3, right? It's heavy. It's really sad. It's extremely frightening for the king who is facing a conspiracy from his own son. So he wrote Psalm 3 in direct response to these truly devastating and terrifying circumstances. And that makes it instructive, very instructive for all of us. So let's, let's dive into the text here. Psalm 3. We are looking first at what David sees and what he hears and what he feels. In other words, what does David observe from his circumstances? And it's very clear. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. David's very clear. His son is conspiring against him. Some of his most trusted advisors have joined the conspiracy. And they are seeking to take his life. Right? This isn't, hey, you've had your time. It's time for you to move on. You know, clean out your desk and thanks for your service. This is, we want your throne and we're going to kill you. Right? This is extremely frightening. It's an assault on his physical being. He could be killed. But that's not all that's happening. In verse 2, he says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So not only does he have a physical assault on his being, there's also a physical assault on his character. Do you see that there? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The implication here is that God's not going to deliver him because he doesn't deserve it. 
After all, why would God intervene to save a philanderer, a murderer, an absentee father to boot? What? He doesn't deserve to be delivered or rescued from God. You know, it's likely that there's a thought in David's mind in the midst of this. Maybe I'm just getting what's coming to me. I've been a rascal, and I'm just getting what I deserve. Charles Spurgeon said, It's the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. So just to recap here, David has seen many enemies, many foes, many rising against him. He's hearing there's no salvation for him in God. Why would God save him? And you can imagine what he's feeling. Probably guilt, shame, confusion, even despair. You ever felt like this? Now, most of us are not ever going to be the monarch of a small Middle Eastern kingdom, right? It's unlikely, you know. But if I had to choose somebody, it'd probably be Jonas Alton. Right? <laughs> Sorry, man, I just looked at you at the wrong time. Just, you know. All right. No, it wouldn't be Jonas, right? This is, this is unique in terms of the specific circumstances, but it's not unique in terms of the effect that it has on our lives, right? We've all looked at the landscape of our lives, and we've all felt fear. We've all felt panic. We've all felt overwhelmed as if we have no idea what to do. So what do you do? What do you do when life circumstances are fearful, when life seems to be spinning out of control? So let's look back at Psalm 3 here. I think it's so important a very important word that gives us great wisdom. Very first word of verse 3, but. This is a significant pivot from all that David sees, hears, feels, to now he's saying, but there's something else here that's going on. This isn't the only reality. There's more that's here in the situation. And that but turns me from what I'm observing to what I know to be true. And when you're facing difficult circumstances, that one little conjunction is absolutely critical. So now let's talk about not only what David observed, but what David knew to be true about God. All right, what David knows. And in the next verses, there's eight specific things that he gives, truths about God that he pairs with his really difficult circumstances. And we're going to go through them pretty quickly. So if you're taking notes, don't sleep on me, all right? The first one is you, O Lord. He says, you, but you, O Lord. You see in your Bibles how Lord is all capitalized, L-O-R-D, all capitals? That's significant. David is not just giving a title to God. He's saying, you, O Lord. Lord is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. It's the eternal God, the self-existent God, the God who doesn't need anyone or anything. So he is wholly other. He is high and lofty. He is exalted. But he's also personal. He's made covenant promises to his people. And he's acted in covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. So right away, David's saying, my circumstances are terrible, but I'm addressing the God of the universe who's made some very specific covenant promises to me and has acted faithfully in steadfast love my whole life. Second, he recognizes God as a protector. Where's that? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield about me. The idea here is to defend or cover or surround. See, David recognizes that God is a shield about him in the midst of danger. Psalm 1830 says, As for God, his way is perfect. 
The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. See, David didn't need a shield when he was comfy cozy in his palace. But when he's in the middle of a war, he needs a shield about him. And it's in this context that David calls to mind that God is his shield. God is his protector. Yeah, he had people around him. He had weapons. But over and above all of that, he says, God, I recognize that you are my shield. You are my protector. That's number two. Number three, he says, God, you're the giver of all that's good in my life. Where's that? He says, you're my glory. David is referring to God as the source of his glory, the source of his honor, the source of every good gift in his life. Psalm 62, 7 says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. <clears throat> Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's promises to King David. Just listen to this. This is God. God saying, I, speaking in first person, I. Here's what I've done and what I'm going to do in your life, King David. He says, I took you from the pasture that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies. I will make for you a great name. I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish the kingdom. I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And in response, in verse 21 of 2 Samuel 7, David says this, Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So when David says, you're my glory, he's humbly acknowledging God is the source of all that's good. It's not me. I can't take any credit for it. It's God and God alone. Then he goes on. He says, God, you're a restorer. You're the lifter of my head. David left Jerusalem. He left his palace in shame, hanging his head. You can imagine as he walks across the Cadron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. But he looked to God as a restorer, as the one who would restore him and exalt him once again to his throne. So that's number four. He's a restorer. God also, in verse four, God is the one who hears and answers his prayer. David says, I cried out, and he answered me from his holy hill. That's extraordinary. We're not going to talk about that that much longer, so just write it down and think about that later. Next, God is a sustainer. This is great. In verse 5, David says, I woke again. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. Why did David wake up in the morning? God sustained him. It's pretty clear. When he was sleeping, unconscious, completely helpless, God sustained him. All right, we're moving on here. David also recognizes and praises God as a warrior. Verse 7, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David recognizes that God doesn't, doesn't just play defense as a shield. God plays offense as a warrior. In Exodus chapter 15, the very first song that was recorded in the Bible, says the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. David calls this to mind that God is a warrior and fights on behalf of his people. And he calls it to mind in a situation that would be absolutely terrifying. All right, so the last thing that David knows about God and writes down as a part of his psalm is that God is the Savior. God is a deliverer. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. To the many who are saying of David's soul, there's no salvation for you in God, 
and to his own heart, who's probably accusing him at the same time, he's saying with triumph and with a little defiance, salvation belongs to the Lord. <clears throat> Isaiah 45:21 says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. David here was clearly talking about a physical salvation, a physical deliverance from his enemies. But we rejoice knowing that when we say salvation belongs to the Lord, it's not just physical. It's not just temporary. We know that God is the God of salvation, that he delights to save sinners. And we rejoice that he is the author of salvation, and he is completely sovereign in salvation as well. So let me encourage each one of you, Christian brothers and sisters, when you're here and you hear the enemy accusing you, and when you're tempted to listen to your own fickle, guilt-ridden heart, join David and say with triumph and defiance, salvation belongs to the Lord. <clears throat> so we've seen David's circumstances. We've seen eight things that he calls to mind to counter it, right? Observe, feel, hear, see. Here's what I know to be true about God. And now we're going to see how does he respond in light of that, right? There's two realities that he's dealing with. The one reality that he can see that's right in front of him, there's another that's more invisible, that's more eternal, that's more unshakable, and how is he going to respond? Four ways. And this is so important because we're going to live and we're going to respond based on one of those realities. doesn't matter the circumstances. We're going to respond out of one of those realities. So we want to see how David responds and see what we can learn from that. The first is in verse 4. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. First response was dependent prayer. <clears throat> what did that look like? Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, in verse 7. When you're in trouble, it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be profound. You don't have to use a lot of polysyllabic words, right? Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. God, I need your help. This is so simple and so profound. David says, I got this all over here. It's terrifying. But here's what I know to be true about God. And in response, I'm going to call out to God in dependent prayer because I know who he is. So let me just ask you, is this, is this your first response in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain? Or do you go through the whole laundry list of things and go, ah, oh, you know what, maybe I should pray about this, right? We all have our go-tos. We all do. And they're wrong, and they're just inwardly focused often. Maybe it's telling everybody that you can think of. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's just going for a long run. I don't know why anyone would like to do that, but... All right, that's me. <clears throat> we should reflexively turn to God in prayer as a first response in the midst of our trials. All right. <clears throat> that's not all David did. He cried out to God in dependent prayer, but he also demonstrated great trust. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. Isn't that awesome? That's pretty cool. I love that. He trusted God so much that he closed his eyes and went to sleep. Sometimes there's no more emphatic expression of trust than just sawing a few logs, right? Sleep is a practical way of declaring our inability to do anything. We're not sovereign. We get tired. We need refreshing. We know from Psalm 121, 
God never sleeps. Psalm 4, 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 23, very familiar verses, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So David cried out to the Lord in dependent prayer, and then he showed trust in God by lying down and conking out. He says, I woke again. Why? Because God sustained me. So number three, dependent prayer, trust, courage. This is kind of remarkable. Verse six, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The threats are real. The danger is significant. Yet I will not be afraid. I know my God. He's a protector. He's a sustainer. He's a God who hears and answers prayer. He's the deliverer. He's a savior. So I'm not going to be afraid. Now let's be honest though. It's not like David never felt fear. Psalm 56 says, when I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in you. It's just that David said, because of who God is, I'm not going to give in to the fear. I'm not going to let that rule my life. My responses are not going to be dictated by the fear that I'm feeling. Rather, it's going to be dictated by the truth about my God. So this is not boasting. This is not David being all macho and saying how great I am. No. David has fresh courage and faith to face the day, not because he's so great, but because he knows and is assured how great his God is. Last, David shows great contentment. The very last part of verse 8, David prays a simple prayer. He says, your blessing be on your people. May your people know the happy reality of living in humble submission to you. That's the blessed life. Michael talked about it the last couple weeks. Psalm 512 says, You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And six, Psalm 67.1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Lord, make your face shine on your people. God, with your blessing, I'm going to be content. That doesn't mean that my circumstances are going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that you're going to remove all the source of my pain and suffering. Rather, I'm just going to be content with your blessing. And the fact that he says your blessing be on your people as opposed to your blessing just be on my life just makes it that much cooler, right? Because the blessing of God in the context of his people is like a million times better than just the blessing of God as I'm flying solo. So here you see, can you see it? Everyone can see it? Sit closer if you can't, all right? All right. So here it is. Here's kind of a breakdown. There's a lot here, and we just blitz through a lot because we have plenty more to cover here. But I just wanted to point this out to you here. Again, the, the three sort of uh, aspects of this psalm, what David is observing, what David knows, and then how he responds. And I put this in front of you because I just, I encourage myself, I exhort myself as well as exhort uh, everyone here. This is really practical. This is Monday morning type stuff as we respond to, as we see the difficulties, big, small, in between. How are we going to respond in light of the reality of God or based only on what we can see, hear, and feel? Now, if you go to the next slide there, this is just a, a summary, or it's not the very words of Psalm 3, but it's a summary there where he's saying again, in the midst of great opposition, great danger, and uncertainty, isolation, guilt, shame, you name it, all of these things. 
These are the things that are anchoring my soul so that I can move forward in faith and trust, dependent prayer and courage. All right. Let's move on. I want to live like David, and I hope you do too. I want to be honest with God about my circumstances, about those things that are difficult, the things that are causing me pain. I want to be honest about that. But I also want to pair those realities with the reality of God's character, his promises to me, and his record of steadfast love and faithfulness so that I'll have fresh courage and faith to do what he's called me to do. Right? In summary, that's lament. So we've just considered the content, excuse me, the context of lament. Now look at the content of lament with me. Sermon number two, who's with me? All right. I, I was expecting a little more than that. All right. Um, okay, the content of lament from Psalm 3. Lament is not a word that we use typically day in and day out. It feels foreign. It feels like, eh, was that just something that the ancients did? They were throwing ashes on their head. They were pulling out their hair. They were beating their chest. It feels weird, right? And, and beyond that, it's, so it's sort of foreign that way. Beyond that, we sort of like happier themes, individually, corporately. It's just more comfy that way right? But listen, it's so important that we dig into this concept of lament. One, it's in the Bible, which start there, end there. It makes it profitable for our soul, right? Two, there's 60-ish of them in the Psalms, which means that it's really important for us. God wouldn't have done that if it weren't. And three, there's so much practical instruction for us as we think about walking wisely through the really difficult stuff of life. So it gives us an opportunity to be completely honest with God about our struggles as we cling to him in the midst of them. So Mark Vrogrop, Vrogrop, author of Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, defines lament this way. To lament is to turn to God in honest, desperate prayer, giving voice to the reality of our emotions as intense and tumultuous as they may be. Ultimately, lament is an expression of faith in the God who hears our cries and responds with mercy and grace. I would highly commend this book to you. A really profound, helpful book on the topic of lament. Very helpful to my soul, very helpful to my study. Uh, we're going to refer to that a number of times here as we continue. So I want to learn lament. I want to practice lament, and I want my brothers and sisters at Grace Rancho to come with me on this journey. So let's look at five components of lament from Psalm 3. All right, five components, and they all start with C. You think that's just by accident. It wasn't. I planned that. <laughs> five C's on lament. The first is cry. The cry of lament. Verse 1 cry. Oh, Lord. Pretty simple concept. Really significant ramifications. One of the worst things we could do in lament or when we are facing trials is to give God the silent treatment, right? How many of you have ever received the silent treatment? Come on. Come on. This is audience participation time, yeah? All right. How many of you have ever given the silent treatment? 
Some of you are a little too enthusiastic raising your hands on that one. How many of you have ever received the silent treatment, but were too clueless to know it? <laughs> yeah, okay, all right, let's move on. Stop that, all right? The silent treatment is not good. This or in our relationship with God, right, solves nothing. But so often we can do that in our walk with God, right? Why? Why do we give God the silent treatment rather than crying out to him? Maybe we think he really doesn't care. Maybe we think he doesn't really understand my pain. Or maybe he cares, but he's not really powerful enough to do anything about it, so why bother? Perhaps I've used up my quota, and he's moving on. Really? You again? Come on, right? We, we think things like this. It's wrong. Or maybe, maybe perhaps I even think, and there's a thought in my mind, that it's more spiritual to not be desperate before the Lord. That I'm just going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's all good. Regardless, lament instructs us to cry out to God. And remember that. Pastor Mark, the author of that book, says lament is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears frustrations and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. So let me encourage you, like David, first response, cry out to God. Second, so we're crying, and then the second C is complaint. Bring your complaint before God. This is what David did. Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. You hear that? Many, many, many. Lord, I'm not holding anything back. It's honest, it's raw, it's intense. And we know, and we know vividly this past week in our lives, in our nation, there's no shortage of really deep, painful, sorrowful things, right? Gilroy, El Paso, Dayton, uh, a fresh diagnosis of cancer, uh, a pastor abandoning the faith, right? All these things, recent we're, we're bombarded with them. Add to that what we know is in our own hearts and what we know is in our own soul. There's no shortage of reasons to bring our complaints to God. Sometimes those can look like statements. Lord, here's what's hard with my circumstances. Here's what my enemies are doing. I need help. I'm feeling fearful, anxious, angry, envious. I see the sin and the darkness and the evil around me. I know the sin in my own heart. Those are statements of complaint. Sometimes it's also, we can ask questions. The psalm that Kent read, Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? Lord, have you forgotten? Why are you silent? God, where are you? What are you doing? What about all your promises? How long will injustice continue? This can feel uncomfortable. It can feel foreign to us if we're not used to sort of being this honest uh, before the Lord. Just listen to a couple verses, and there's many more. These are just a couple examples. Psalm 55, 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Psalm 102, 1 and 2, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And Psalm 22, 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Does this feel a little bit uncomfortable to you? 
I admit, it, do, it does to me as well. It shouldn't, though. We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 4 that we have a high priest who understands, that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, have been, but is without sin. And then we receive a bold invitation to come before his throne, to come before his throne that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, God invites, he welcomes, he requests complaints from desperate prayers who are keenly aware of their need for his mercy and grace. There's nothing that you can tell him that he doesn't know. There's nothing that you can say that would shock him. Pastor Mark states that complaints give voice to our hard questions. Listen, I'd encourage you, as you're facing a trial, as perhaps you're walking through a trial with somebody else, think about giving voice to your complaint. And maybe even just writing it down, like David did, writing it down, memorializing it, in order to say, Lord, here's how I'm really feeling. It's honest, it's raw, it may even be a bit embarrassing. But I'm speaking from my heart, and I'm bringing my complaint before you. Our next C is so simple. So simple, but so important. And it's the word conjunction. Because anytime you can include a schoolhouse rock reference in a sermon, I think you have to, right? Come on. Who's with me? Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Yeah? All right. Am I dating myself again? All right. Sorry for the people that will now have that song in their head for the rest of the sermon and be completely distracted. All right. Verse 3, first word, but. The conjunction acts as a critical pivot, right? Here we are over here. Cry, Lord, complaint. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But. Examples of this in the Psalms. But, yet, then, even so, nevertheless. And don't miss this. The conjunction is so critical here. Because staying in complaint, living here, is not the point of lament. Simply airing your grievances and staying there is not the point and often can be a, a sinful, selfish focus. Yes, my circumstances are really difficult. I meant everything that I said. The pain and the hurting and the suffering are real, but I'm not going to stay there. See, that conjunction provides movement. We're moving from here to here. What we know, or excuse me, what we hear, what we see, what we feel, to what we know to be true about our great God. My reality is awfully bleak, but there's a deeper, more fundamental, more eternal reality. And I can't change my circumstances, and God may not choose to change them soon or at all. But I'm fighting for faith and hope in the midst of the hard circumstances. This is important. In lament, a conjunction moves us from the what to the who. From the what of our circumstances to the who of God, his character, his promises, and his record of steadfast love. You see how essential this conjunction is in lament? Cry out to God. Bring your complaint to God, but don't skip the conjunction. All right. Moving right along. Number four, C, confidence. Our next C is confidence. As we move from our complaint, 
lament moves us to express confidence in God, right? And we've already shown how David did that. What are those eight things that he knew? God's eternal. God's a protector. God's the one who is good and gives good gifts. He's a restorer. He hears and answers prayers. He's a sustainer, a mighty warrior, and the author of salvation. Sometimes those statements of confidence are just that, statements. Other times, they are bold requests of God. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Uh, in other places, Lord, put an end to an injustice, to injustice, right? Whether it's a statement or an ask, a prayer, we're saying, God, I'm asking you, I'm coming before you because I have absolute confidence that you are going to be who you say you are and act in accordance with your character and with your promises. But this is so important. In order for this to be true, in, us for, in order for us to make these statements and to have confidence and for our soul to be resting in them, we got to know them. We have to know them. If we just look at our circumstances and go, ah, what's true about God that I can pair with this to, to kind of keep this process moving and we, we come up blank, this whole confidence thing falls apart pretty quickly. So it's so important. When we, what we do as a church, right, why we preach God's word faithfully every single week because we need to know God in his character and in his promises. But it's also important that we're digging in throughout the week as individuals, as families, so that we have a reservoir of truth to dwell from, to anchor us in the difficult times. Next, uh, next slide here. We've got a quote from, uh, from a gentleman named Maurice Roberts. I love this. There's so many quotes that we could have used, so many scripture references. I just wanted to share this with you. He says this, The thought of God should be the Christian's panacea. It should cure all his ills at a stroke. Nothing can approach in beauty the idea of the true and living God. That there exists a being who is infinite in power, knowledge, and goodness. That that being cares for me with a perfect love as though, our, as though I were the only man in existence. That he loved me before I was born and created me to enjoy him eternally. And that he sent his son to suffer the agony of the cross to secure my eternal happiness. That surely must be a thought to end all sorrow. And I'll just add to that, it's not necessarily a thought to end all sorrow immediately. Sorrow is real. We struggle with it. But it's an anchor in the midst of the sorrow. And that's just one example of things that we know to be true about God and ought to give us great confidence and that we can express it in the process of lament. The immutability of God's character and his rock-solid promises give us fresh perspective and confidence. So let's fight for it in the midst of lament. Now, just a quick illustration here. Next slide. Have you guys seen this picture before? How many people see an old woman in this picture? How many people see a young lady? How many people can't see either and are like, this is dumb? <laughs> Why do you keep asking me to raise your hand? <laughs> Put your hand down. <laughs> right? See, listen, there's both. There's both the young lady and the old woman. And this is an illustration of sometimes the way it is in our trials, in our sufferings, right? Things are real. The pain is real. The sorrow is real. The suffering is intense. And yet, in the midst of that, there's reality that's true about God. And if we don't see it, we got to keep looking for it. We can't just look away and go, ah, it's not there. No, there's a deeper, more real, more lasting reality that we need to keep looking for and hold on to to give us confidence in the midst of lament. All right. Our fifth C is choice. Choice. We cry out to God, bring our complaint to him, insert a critical, critical pivot 
that helps us to move from the what to the who. We express confidence in God, and then we choose to trust. We make a choice to trust God. We saw this in Psalm 3, right? David says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to have courage. I'm going to not fear. I'm going to be content. Psalm 9, 9 through 10 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put your trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. We choose to, yes, we know God's name. We know his character. We know his record of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we say with the hymn writer, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. We don't trust. We don't choose to trust because we're assured of different circumstances. We don't place our confidence in God because he is obligated to give us what I want. We choose to trust God because he will act in a manner that's consistent with his character and with his promises. And what this looks like in lament, it's statements that say, I'm, I'm going to do something, I will, or I'm not going to do something. I'm going to obey, I'm going to be content, I'm going to wait, I'm going to grieve with hope, I'm not going to fear, I'm not going to panic, I'm not going to stop trusting. Or as Pastor Mark says, I'm going to keep trusting the one who keeps me trusting. I'm going to keep trusting the one who keeps me trusting. And again, he says this, choosing to trust through lament requires that we rejoice without knowing how all the dots connect. We decide to let God be his own interpreter, trusting that somehow his gracious plan is being worked out, even if we can't see it. So now do you have a better understanding of the content of lament? Do you see how it's a helpful, humble, and worshipful way to turn to God in honest and desperate prayer, but also rely upon him to provide the mercy and grace that we need in any and every circumstance? There are examples all throughout the Psalms, David and the other Psalm writers, the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, the prophet Habakkuk, same. You can see this progression where they start with questions and accusations and end up with incredible statements of faith and confidence and trust in God. I just want to share a few quick examples from our body in Grace Rancho because I want all of us to think about this practically, not theoretically, not as in, that was great for David, but I have no idea what it means for tomorrow morning. So I just have a few examples from people who have given their permission to, uh, to share a little bit of their story. The first is our brother, Mark Madrid. Mark has been battling skin cancer, and recently he had a decent chunk of his arm cut out. He'll show you pictures. I would not recommend it, all right? I'm just saying. He shared, though, he's, man, I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm confused. I don't know exactly what the diagnosis is. Now, praise the Lord. Uh, the doctors have said he's good. But we just, ah, it's hard. And I'm battling. I'm up and down. And he said, you know what I'm doing? I got a song on repeat. I probably listened to it a couple hundred times. It's a song by Mercy Me called Even If. Great, great song. Even if it goes like this. He says, I know you're able. God, I know you're able. And I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my heart, my hope, excuse me, my hope is you alone. Right? You see that process, right? 
cancer, fear, uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen. What if? But my hope's in God. God's faithful. I know he's going to be consistent with his character and with his promises. So I'm battling. I'm telling my heart, hope in God again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Again, you see it, right? Again and again and again. Put that song on repeat a couple hundred times if need be, right? Read that scripture passage over and over and over again. Tell your heart. Instruct your heart. Hope in God. Second example from our body, and I love, I love this. The reason I love this so much is because it's an evidence of what God's doing, working in people, refining people, helping them to trust, helping them to grow in the midst of difficult circumstances. This next one's a little bit different. This is Taylor Shara. Taylor Shara, who she and Michael have a four-month-old baby, five-month-old baby, right? And he's still not perfectly sanctified, all right? <laughs> and Taylor, before she had this kid, had a very productive life. She had lots of friends. Any, on any given day, she accomplished a lot. Baby comes, and it's a great accomplishment to shower, right? What would you do today? I fed the kid. I changed the kid. I kept the kid alive as best I could. Yeah. What do you do tomorrow? Mm, same. What did you do yesterday? Yeah, pretty much that, right? I'm struggling with contentment. What? You just had a baby. You prayed for this. You rejoice over this, and you're struggling with contentment? Yeah. Would you pray for me? Right? That, even in circumstances, you think, that's not cancer. That's not somebody dying. This is a happy thing. And yet, there's frustrations. There's struggle. There's a struggle for contentment in the midst of circumstances. And you know what? I'm praying that way. Michael's praying with me that way. But I want my brothers and sisters praying with me, supporting me, in this battle for faith. As I'm looking at circumstances and going, I'm never getting out of this phase. I'm never going to be the same. It's just me and this kid. I can't see it, right? <laughs> no, right? It's a battle. It's a battle. And we bring in other people for help and strength and support, right? Praise God for the opportunity to lament, even in those little things that aren't necessarily life-shattering and ultimately look back and go, it was fine. But in the midst of it, it's hard, right? And we don't want to minimize that or pretend that it's fine. Third is uh, actually an illustration from my own life. A couple years ago, my wife and I were walking through a very difficult and painful trial uh, with someone we loved very, very much. And they were making some very sinful choices. And I was so wrapped up in my fear. I, I would grind away for hours. I'd be awake at night grinding away on all the what ifs. What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if my life is never the same? What if my life is horrible from here on out? And some that were probable, some that were wildly improbable. And, and through, uh, through an article that I read, I believe God just directed me to write all those what-if statements down, to put them on paper, and then to pair those with the reality of God's character, of his promises, and his record of steadfast love and faithfulness in my life, and in the life of my family, and in those that I love in my church. So there it was, in black and white, on a piece of paper. What if? What if all this happens? What if all this comes to pass? Even if. Here's what's true about God. God is faithful. His promises are true. And none of that is ever going to change, right? And then I shared it with my wife. And then I shared it with Pastor Eric so that they could pray with me and pray for me in the battle and in the struggle for faith. Do you guys see that? It, 
I just think it's so immensely practical. I hope you hear that and see that and feel that. On the back of your notes page, there's an outline. And it's got the five C's. And you don't have to use it specifically like this if you don't want. But it's just a way for you to think about maybe something now in your life to be able to think about, hey, I want, I want to put this into practice. I want to be honest with God and with others about the hard stuff that I'm going through. I want to bring my complaint before the Lord, but I want to pivot in a way that says I'm not going to stay here and I'm going to move towards greater confidence and choosing to trust and rest and be content in God. Right? So I'd encourage you to do that. Take some time maybe this week and then share it with somebody you love. Share it with a, a good friend uh, that they can walk with you and pray with you and give you strength and support in God. All right. That was the end of sermon number two. But there's more. All right. There's more. Because it's not 1130 yet. And I only got one shot at this, right? And Eric goes long, and he gets it every week. So here we go. This, this point is shorter. That's really true. The third point is the certainty in lament. We've seen the context of lament, the content of lament. But now it's the certainty in lament, right? We know it's so important that we be certain of things. If we're going to have confidence in God, if we are going to choose to trust in the midst of even really difficult, deep, and dark circumstances that we're facing, we got to have unshakable confidence. And so the Bible says very clearly that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, right? And it says that we have been given, his children have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So let's look at two ways that Psalm 3 points us to Jesus. Two ways that Psalm 3 points us to Jesus. That in seeing and beholding him, we may be strengthened to cling to him in the darkest trial. First, God's love for you as his child is secure. God's love for you as his child is secure. Now, where's that in Psalm 3? This is so cool. David, we know from 2 Samuel 15, that when he was in this trial, he left Jerusalem. He crossed the Cadron Valley and went up and over the Mount of Olives. Fast forward several hundred years. The son of David, Jesus the Messiah, the God-man, on the night before he was crucified, left Jerusalem, crossed the Cadron Valley, and went up the Mount of Olives. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus prayed to his Father. And you know what he prayed? He prayed a prayer of lament. He prayed a prayer of lament. It was simple. It wasn't long. But it was born out of his deep agony. What was that prayer of lament? He prayed, Father. He cried out to his Father, God, the creator, God, the righteous judge, the one who abounds in mercy and love and compassion, but the God who by no means lets sin go unpunished. He prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, right? Father, he's crying out. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? The cup is a symbol of God's righteous wrath against sin. Jesus saw what was in store for him the next day. He was going to have to drain that cup, the very last drop of God's wrath. He staggered. His anguish was so great 
The Bible says that his sweat was like drops of blood. But why? Why was Jesus about to drink the cup of divine wrath? Jesus never sinned. He lived the perfect life. He was God's beloved son. God was well pleased with him. The reason is that the wages of payment, the wages or the payment of sin is death. Jesus was going to drink that cup for you and me. Because God created man to, in his image. God created man and women to know him, to reflect his glory, to live in humble and joyful submission to him. But from our very first parents, mankind has rebelled against God. We've rejected him. We've ignored him. We've said, no, thank you. I'll be my own boss. I'll be my own king. That's called sin. And God is holy, so sin must be punished. But the Bible says that God so loved the world, he so loved the world, that he gave his only son, Jesus. That's who's praying to his father, who's about to be crucified. Jesus lived the perfect life. And the next day, he'd be crucified on the cross. He knows that's coming. After his cry and his complaint, he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The ultimate expression of confidence and a choosing to trust. That was Jesus' response, his lament in the garden. Why? Why? Because he loved us. Because he knew that that was the only way that we could be forgiven of our sins. On the cross, he prayed another prayer of lament from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why we sing, I'm forgiven because Jesus was forsaken. And I'm accepted because he was condemned by his Father. Christ was rejected by the Father so that you and I would never have to be. He was the man of sorrows so that we could experience eternal joy. He lived for you, he died for you, and then he rose for you, forever proving that he is the Son of God. So what's all this mean? How do all these benefits apply to our lives? The Bible's clear. It says, repent and turn from your sin and put your full faith in him. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. If you're here today and don't know the love of God in Christ, let me implore you, put your full faith and trust in Christ today. Christian friend, know and believe the promise of Romans chapter 8. God is for you. How do you know? How do you know God's for you? In the midst of the darkest trial, in the midst of your darkest hour, he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So know that. If you're wondering, does God love me? Is his love for me secure? Anchor yourselves in the truth of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And remember Jesus' prayer of lament that he prayed, saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's number one truth that we need to anchor our souls. Number two, your lament-free eternity is guaranteed. Your lament-free eternity is guaranteed. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. This is where all history is going. The very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. 
So just as David crossed the Kidron Valley, went up to the Mount of Olives, crying out, complaining to God, Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment. Jesus the Messiah is the one who died on behalf of his people to save them from their sins so that we could be reconciled to God. The second way that Psalm 3 points to Jesus is in Revelation chapter 7. Psalm 3 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Read with me Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's Jesus. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We just talked about that, the death of Christ that covers them. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Verse 17, don't miss this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you've been through what you're going through, what God has in store for you to go through. But our certainty and lament is that God's love for us is secure and our eternity, excuse me, lament-free eternity is guaranteed. May that anchor our soul in the deepest, darkest trial. And may, by God's grace, we discover more and more of the grace available to us in lament for ourselves, for our families, and our corporate body. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Thank you for this gift of lament. Thank you for Psalm 3. Thank you for uh, preserving your word. And thank you for the opportunity to look and to consider it, uh, look at and consider it together as a family. We pray that by grace you would change us more and more to be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.